welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. If I asked you this question, if you were being interviewed for a job you really wanted, or you were meeting with like someone really famous that you admired and you wanted to impress, and they asked you the question, what do you do in your spare time? What would you say? <laughs> it makes me think of uh, when I was in my undergrad and just kind of finishing up, and we were all interviewing for jobs. A guy that I knew came back from an interview and he said, oh, they asked me this question, like, what do you like to do in your spare time? And I said, I like to think. We were all like, that is the dumbest thing you could say. I mean, everybody knows you should describe the busy things that you do, how your life is full of busyness and activity, right? Because everybody knows a busy life and a full life is a good life, right? Is an important life, right? Like everybody knows that. <laughs> um, and I found as I got into my job that one of the things we did was that busyness was like a badge of honor. Like we learned to brag about how many hours we worked. And what was the cool thing about being able to brag about how many hours you worked is not only um, were you uh, helping other people feel sorry for you because you were working so hard, but they actually felt bad about themselves and admire you a little more because you were so busy, right? <laughs> this is ridiculous, but this is, this is the idea. And, and then uh, smartphones is like a whole new way to uh, demonstrate or brag about our busy lives of all the stuff we're doing, the new things we make, the new skills we learn how to do, the places we went, uh, the program we're enrolled in now, uh, all of the activity and the fullness of life because a busy busy life and a full life is an important one, right? Author John Mark Comer challenges that notion saying this, we hear the refrain, I'm great, just busy. So often we assume pathological busyness is okay. After all, everybody else is busy too. But what if busyness isn't healthy? What if it's an airborne contagion wreaking havoc on our collective soul. Now, maybe you might say, well, that's kind of dramatic, isn't it? But you know the great loss when a life is too busy or too full is relationships. A life that is busy with a lot of activity and maybe, in fact, interacting with a lot of people. A life that is full and crowded and a schedule that is packed from here to there. The great loss in the end is actually relationships. And let me just give you an example of that. The tech company did not sell me my phone. The tech company sold me to the world using my phone right? And I paid them to do it. I pay them every month to do it. I mean, this was the great reveal, right, of the social dilemma. If you watch that uh, on Netflix, you know anything about technology. Yes, the cell phones, great. Lots of technology can, can help us, and we get it to get stuff done. But in the end, what it has done is created an overcrowding in our lives as ultimately the tech companies are selling us as the product, our eyeballs, our views, our scrolls, our likes, our reposts, our tweets as the product to advertisers. And what that means is this little phone we have in our pocket has allowed so many other things and people to crowd into our lives. And this is what I mean. 
I like to think, oh, this is a tool that helps me connect with people and phone and text or whatever. But how often do I spend? And the reality is I might know more about the pitch selection used by my favorite baseball team last night in their 3-1 loss than I know what happened to the members of my family last night and their day and what they're dealing with. Some of you know more inane details about so many people in your lives that you barely know and you haven't had a meaningful conversation with your spouse in a month. How many of us are so aware of all of the things that we could be doing and should be doing that other people are doing and yet there's this constant sense of like disconnection actually from people and from God? It's so interesting. Our lives, a few years ago, we would say we're so busy, so full. In fact, uh, John Mark wrote that quote before the pandemic, before the actual airborne contagion, where our lives suddenly, think about this, got empty. Everything got emptied. Our schedules were like completely empty. And then I don't know about you, but suddenly they got refilled in a hurry. Almost it feels like even fuller and even busier and even more packed and scheduled than ever before overnight. And the great loss in a life that is too busy and a life that is too full is relationships. And so even though we would all say, I feel so busy, I still hear lots of people say, and I can see this in my own life, well, I feel a little bit alone or I feel disconnected from other people. I don't know if people really know me. I feel disconnected from God. In this series, we're talking about the fact that like it's possible in a sense to feel that experience with each other and with God, that sense of disconnection. And John Orbrook says this, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith or in a sense, leave it. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it, of our faith. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. Wow. We would just skim our lives instead of actually living them. And so the question is, what does it mean to truly live our lives? Is that just about, you know, the Bible's version of putting nice little captions below a picture of you smelling the flowers and trying, you know, to be present in your relationships? No, when we talk about this idea of presence, which is the series we're in, the biblical writers describe the good life, the valuable life, the full life as one where we are deeply connected to God in relationship with him, where we experience the presence of God in our lives and where we are as a result physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally present to and with the people around us. That is what this series presence is about. Not just a full life, a busy life, an active life or a life where we are around and connect or interacting with people, but we are actually in deep relationship with God, experiencing his presence and bringing his presence to the people around us. But we said, man, we need practice at this. We actually need practices that help us live the truly full, the truly important life. As someone says, we're so busy writing our resumes, we should be writing our eulogies. Not all the stuff we're doing and have done, but the kind of people we want to be in the end. And we all know relationship is at the center. And so to find what the really good life is, the good news is we actually know we have a pattern or a life to look at and follow. That life is Jesus. Many of us grew up in traditions, or perhaps you've sort of heard this, the emphasis of Jesus was primarily on his death. 
And yes, the death of Jesus is significant on so many levels, but one of the greatest reasons for it is because of the life that he lived, whose death it was. The gospel accounts, we actually have four biographies that chronicle not just Jesus' death, but his life, and his life becomes a pattern or a picture or a life to follow and a way to learn what does it mean to live a full life? What does it mean to be present with God and with others? And the story we're going to look at today is one of those where we get a window into a picture of how Jesus actually lived a life like that. And yet, I personally, I'll say I've read this many times, but I was stunned by something I had never seen before that I think is the clincher for us. We who feel, in a sense, overcrowded by the life we live, by a full schedule, by busyness and activity, but are wondering, what does it mean to actually have a full life? So let's listen together. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about twelve, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out of me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. What do you see or what hits you when you first hear that passage or you read it? I mean, on one level, on the bare face of it, there's a miracle, this, this amazing miracle of healing. But it's kind of a strange miracle, sort of a strange account for a number of reasons. One is there's crowds, which is a common feature in the biographies of Jesus. He was always surrounded by people. And so there wouldn't have been a ton of people in the crowds all the time. But all of a sudden, in this one, we hear a specific story of one person in it. Um, it's more strange, I feel like, because it's the kind of miracle Jesus did. I mean, it was obviously a big deal to this woman who was healed from bleeding for 12 years, and that, that just meant probably had some kind of a blood disorder or like a hemophiliac, like a hemorrhaging problem of some kind, which obviously would have been a big deal for her. But if you think about the other miracles that Jesus did, I mean, we know he was actually on his way to try to save a little girl from dying, we know he had like fed thousands of people from one lunch bag before. He had actually raised dead people. He had healed people who had been blind from birth, who had never been able to see their whole lives in their 40s and 50s and were able to see. He had calmed a torrential storm with just two words. I mean, we'd seen some amazing miracles of Jesus. So this one just kind of seems like, well, why, why is this one so um, important? What's the big deal? And it's also strange um, Jesus' reaction to it. Um, he's in this crowd of people, um, and they're, they're pressing it around him, and he's on his way to go see a young girl who's dying, and the guy who comes to say, hey, can you help? Can you somehow save her life or whatever? 
And Jesus, in the middle of this crowd, says, who touched me? Which is just like, I mean, an absurd question. Um, it's like being, have you ever been in a packed elevator in this crazy concert? I don't know, I've been in a mosh pit or whatever, or maybe the last time you were or whatever. And it's like saying, hey, someone touched me. Well, of course. And in fact, Peter, God bless Peter. He's the disciple who just says the stuff we're all thinking, right? Um, Lord, what do you mean who touched you? That's the dumbest question. He didn't say that. But it's he's probably thinking like, what do you mean who touched you? We're, we're surrounded, this, like literally everyone. The answer is everyone. What do you mean who touched you? How could you possibly not... Um, uh, like, how could we possibly want to know the answer? Why does that even matter? And in fact, we know it was a woman who had reached out to him, this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and touched his cloak, and she had been healed. So the miracle had already taken place just by the touching of Jesus' cloak. So Peter's probably like, hey, we're moving on to something. Okay, miracle done. Like, let's go. Why do, what do you even know what's happening? Why are you stopping? Why do you care? But Jesus refuses to move on. He's like, no. Peter says, what do you mean somebody touched you? Everybody touched you. He's like, no, I felt power go out from me. I felt somebody touched me. Something happened in my body. Like, uh, and when he talks about power, we think like the, the power of God's spirit. Something happened in me. I want to know who, and nobody's coming forward. <laughs> it's like that, you know, like, I don't know, teachers is like, who, you know, drew that stupid thing on the blackboard? No one wants to say anything. There's this moment where everyone's like, what do you mean? I don't even think most of the people knew. What do you mean who touched you? We all touch you, but he's obviously something happened, something happened, and no one's saying anything. And finally, this woman comes out and she explains to them her story, that, that she had been bleeding for 12 years, that she had spent all of her money on doctors, and she was now broke. She had nothing left. And she said, I just thought if I could reach out and touch your cloak, that I would be healed. And she is. Amazing. But why is this interaction so significant? And in fact, we kind of actually just have to understand what's going on in this story, and even of the setup of it. The setup, I want you to just kind of step back in your mind's eye and see, this is a story about two people and crowds. There's a rich man who's come to ask Jesus for help, and there's this other woman who needs help. And the two people, in the context of the crowds crushing all around and think crowd noise and people and the craziness of what was going on, there's these two people, and the two people could not have been more different from each other. Certainly in general, but certainly in the first century. First of all, there's a man who asked Jesus for help, and there's a woman who needs Jesus' help. Right away, we know, and maybe you've known this from some of our teaching in the past, or you know just something about the ancient world, women were not considered valuable or important at all in the ancient world. In many ways, they were considered property of their families or their parents or whatever, or even their husbands. And so this idea of a man who needs help and a woman who needs help, clearly there's a difference in importance in the pecking order in that society. Secondly, it says that he was a synagogue ruler which meant he was a very important person, the ruler of the synagogue. And the, remember, the, the Jewish life in the synagogue wasn't just about their religion. It was kind of a, a social, cultural um, kind of uh, you know, center of life was the synagogue and, of course, the temple in Jerusalem. And here's this ruler in the synagogue, a very important person close to God, and this nobody woman. Thirdly, he would have been a wealthy person if he was a synagogue ruler. That would have been something that, you know, he owned a house. We know that. And he would have been a wealthy person that's, that's, of that status. That's what you got. And she, we know, was broke. That whatever money she did have had been spent on doctors trying to cure her, whether that was doctors who had taken advantage of her or just people who have tried or whatever, we don't know. 
And lastly, it says that he confidently, in fact, he threw himself at Jesus' feet. You know, he, he probably knew Jesus was going to help him. And he had no problem approaching him because of who he was. She was hiding because of who she was. And so think about this. Jesus gets asked by this, very, by this man who's a synagogue ruler, who's wealthy, and confidently, very importantly, approaches him and asks him for help. And Jesus is on his way to do this very important thing for this very important person. And here's the thing. The disciples probably would have thought, oh, this is a really good thing because this guy's a synagogue ruler. So if we help him, this is going to be good for the Jesus movement <laughs> and all the disciples around the Jesus movement. This is clearly a priority. Also, if you go in, the, in that culture, reciprocity, right? You do this for me, I'll do this for you, was a big deal. And so if you go and do something amazing for someone who's really important and really wealthy, hey, they're going to owe you. And it's always good to have someone who's really wealthy and really important owe you something. So this was clearly a priority, clearly of a matter of importance. And Jesus is on his way to do this. And the noise of the crowd and the chaos is crushing around him. And Jesus stops in the middle of it, on his way to do something really important, in the middle of this crowd, in the middle of other priorities in a noisy crowd, Jesus stops to let the Spirit lead him to a person in a mass of people. You get that? on his way to do something clearly very important for a very important person with all of the noise and the crush of the crowds around him, Jesus stops because he feels something inside of him. God's spirit moves. His power, the spirit of power has left me. Something just happened and he turns to find and see a person in a mass of humanity. And then he says, who touched me? Who touched me? Now, this can feel like Jesus is embarrassing her. Like I felt power came out of me. Someone took something from me. Who did it? <laughs> right? But that's not at all. It's the, and, and it looks like he's trying to expose her, embarrass her. The exact opposite thing is happening. happening. And here's why I say that. This passage tells us, and she obviously, we know this because she told them her story in the end. That's how we know. They told, they, she explained everything to them and they wrote it down a little while later. She had been suffering from bleeding for 12 years. Now, this was not just a physical ailment that obviously would have troubled and afflicted her. But in Old Testament law and in the ancient world, if you were bleeding, especially as a woman, it was this thing of being unclean. And so you had to stay away from other people if you were unclean for any types of reason. And, and perpetual bleeding or anyone who bled continually was someone who had to stay away from other people. So it, 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 this was not just something that affected her physically, it affected her socially. In other words, she wouldn't be able to be around other people. And so even her being in a crowd was a huge risk if anyone found out that she was someone who was, quote, unclean, which is why she didn't want to come out with it at first. So she would have been not only physically afflicted, she would have been socially cut off and she would have been too unclean or considered unclean to go into the temple or the synagogue. Therefore, she would have been considered by holy people and by God as unclean and cut off. So here's this woman, because of her disease, separated, isolated from other people, separated, cut off, and isolated from God. And so she would have been sure if the other people found out, they would have rejected her and, and jumped away and said, get away, don't touch us. And she would have probably been really sure that if this holy man knew that she was close to him. If this holy man knew that she who was unclean was touching him, he would not want anything to do with her. And Jesus calls her out to tell her that nothing could be further from the truth. 
See, in that culture, if you were unclean, you made everyone else unclean if you touched them. And Jesus says, no, when you touch me, I make you clean. And that's why he invites her out in the crowd to do two things. One is to restore her socially in the crowd because she was, she was unclean. She was cut off from society and other people. So he brings her out to say, you are clean. And as a holy man, as someone with Jesus' prominence and importance says she's clean, that means she's allowed to re-enter society. She, he reconnected her to people. And he says, your faith has healed you. In other words, it's him holding her up as an example. Oh, you think because she's unclean or whatever in your standard, she's cut off from God? I'm going to show you her faith as something you should try to have more of. He holds her up as an example of someone who is close to God because of her faith. Isn't that incredible? Jesus in that one moment, he wasn't trying to expose her to shame her. He was restoring her into community with other people and he was restoring her place with God in everyone else's eyes. Look at her faith. You should be more like her. Amazing. But you know what the most important part about this whole thing is? And I had read it many times, had never seen it until I read a commentary by Joel Green on the Gospel of Luke. This word, when it says the crowds almost crushed Jesus, that word means, also means stifled or crowded or choked. Stifled, like crowd. And you can kind of feel that even some of you who are like, you don't like closed spaces, you don't like elevators or whatever. Like you can feel that. This idea of the crowds crushing him means stifling him, crowding him, choking him, almost, you know, to death. Do you know where that word crushed appears elsewhere in Luke's gospel. And in fact, Luke only uses it one other time. And then when you're doing interpretation, biblical interpretation, you're trying to understand the meaning of a word. One of the things they use, they ask to say, understand the word is where else does the author use it? And how close in like verses and chapters are the words to each other? Luke uses this word crushed only one other place in this same chapter, a few verses earlier. When Jesus is telling an allegory and I won't get into all the allegory. But the point of the story there is, he said, it's possible for the life of God in you and the life that God has for you to be choked, to be crushed, to be stifled, hear this, by the busyness of our lives. It was the parable of the sower where it says, seed is sown, but thorns grow up and choke the seed choke the life of God, choke the values of God, choke the kingdom of God. It crushes it. It stifles it from growing in your life, which is to say this, the busyness of our lives and the pursuit of things and goals can stifle or crowd out, listen, our ability to feel God's presence, hear God's voice, and see the needs of the people around us. That's where Luke, that's the point Luke makes earlier on in the passage. And it becomes very clear in this passage, in this story, how in the same way that Jesus was on his way to do something clearly very important as a goal and was going to help him and help this other person. And it made sense to everyone that this is where he would go on his way to do that while he was crushed by the noise of crowd and life around him. He stops dead in his tracks because he feels something in his spirit and his body that he knows is the spirit of God. And he sees a person in a mass of humanity who has a need and he helps her. 
In that same way, the busyness of our lives, the overcrowding of our schedules, the blinding pursuit of whatever goals and other people have for us or our bosses have for us or our parents have for us or the world says this is important, this is valuable, the endless barrage of noise of what we should do and should buy and should be and should go and should become and should learn how to do and how to make overnight and YouTube sensations. It's possible that all of that stuff can crowd out or choke out or stifle the things of God in your life can hinder your ability to hear God's voice, to feel his presence, and to see people in the masses of humanity around us. It's possible for the truly important things in life to be stifled and choked out by an overcrowded life, a full agenda, a, the busyness of pursuing things and goals can get in the way of us hearing God, experiencing God, feeling close to him, and letting him lead us to the people around us. Maybe, maybe, I'm not saying we are, but maybe at times or in this moment in your life, we're blaming the wrong things for our feelings of disconnection from God. We're blaming the wrong things for the fact that we feel we can't hear his voice. We're blaming the wrong things for the fact that we feel isolated or disconnected or lonely. We're blaming the wrong things for not having enough time to help others or notice other people. And so if that's possible, I want to give us a few moments just today, just while we're here together, to stop and reflect. And I want to ask you just to do some thinking with the help of the Holy Spirit that's here. What is stifling, crowding, or crushing you? Is it scrolling, right? The endless scrolling that we say actually keeps us connected to people, but quite frankly, most often just makes us jealous of them, judgmental of them, or just distracted from the actual people in our lives, right? How often when we're scrolling, we see somebody's post, do we think to pray for them <laughs> or we think to call them? No, we just keep on going and either oh, that's nice, or I wish I had that, or I can't believe they did that, or there they are posting again, and off we go. How much scrolling is actually stifling your life? <clears throat> what about streaming? How many endless hours, and quite frankly, friends, if you are filling your minds and hearts with sex, violence, conflict, and dysfunction in the made-up lives of other people for hours and hours a week, it will stifle your ability to hear the voice of God. That is just a simple fact because your mind and your heart are being crushed, stifled, and God's voice is crowded out. How many of us, it's our streaming habits that are getting in the way? What about shopping? Shopping, that impulsive instinct to just buy the next thing or we saw that or we want to go or our friend posted this app that you can see what you would look like with fake eyelashes and so off we go to do that. How much of that shopping is just impulsive behavior that fills up our time or even perusing realtor.ca even though we're not even going to buy a house or we could never afford it anyways but there we go looking at it again. The sort of the endless shopping that actually could be stifling our ability for God to be getting our attention for us to see the people around us, other, not just the things that they're wearing or driving or doing. Stressing, 
right? That's actually when Jesus describes this earlier on in Luke, he says the, the worries of life or the cares of life or the stuff you care too much about that our constant thinking about things we can't control, stuff we did in the past that we can't change, stuff that might happen in the future but we're not sure about. Our stressing can stifle the life of God in us, can block us from seeing the people around us because we're so preoccupied with our thoughts. Another S where I kept them all S's. Might be scheduling too much. You work too much. Actually, in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, John Mark Comer references studies that basically say the difference in product, there's no more productivity if you work 70 hours a week than if you work 50. Some of you may be working for employers in places where that extra 20 hours you think you're being more productive or they think you are, you're just not. Some of us have too much time we're spending at work. Some of us just activity. All the stuff we've crammed into our schedule for ourselves, for other people, for this or that, or to learn a new thing, or for our kids and more opportunities for them, or errands, or projects, or leisure. There's just too much color on the Google calendar. Or maybe it's scheduling too little. <laughs> we don't schedule time with God, and we just assume we're going to hear his voice. <laughs> we don't stop enough to listen to him, to others. We don't stop. We don't have enough margin to seek out others, to linger in a conversation, to ask somebody that we see every day at the gas station how they're doing, or our neighbor that we just say hi and goodbye to every day. Because there's not enough time. We haven't scheduled it to say, I'm just going to plan to be outside between 5 p.m. and 7 p.m. every day in the summer because I know I'm going to run into people. We're not scheduling some of it actually enough. I'm not asking you to fix all these things right now, but I do want you to take a moment, just for four minutes, we're gonna set a timer for you, just time to reflect, to actually say, okay, which of these is just either by sheer number of hours or how much is occupying my mind might be actually the thing that's stifling my ability to hear God's voice, to sense his presence, or to be attentive to the people around me. So let's just take a few minutes and reflect on that with the help of God's Spirit together.
Yeah, I don't know, um, you know, what came up for you. But like I said, um, I'm not asking you, and I don't think God is asking you to fix everything, change everything, and make all these commitments, although maybe something came up for you that you want to do. But I should want to give you something simple, not easy, but something simple that I think we can actually practice even today in, in the next, like after the service is over or tonight or tomorrow morning that in a sense you don't have to change what you plan to do or where you plan to go. But this one simple thing is something you could think about <laughs> based on the quote by a Greek philosopher uh, that we have two ears <laughs> and one mouth and we should learn to use them proportionally. <laughs> Just say we, we need to get better at listening. And so I have this question for you, or maybe just this encouragement to increase your question to statement ratio. In other words, to ask more questions or listen more and talk less. Or the, the things we talk or say are questions, not just statements about ourselves or about the world. And in two areas of your life, one with Jesus. Some of you that pray or you're learning to pray, this is a practice we try to encourage you that prayer, the first act of prayer is actually listening or to ask Jesus, Jesus, what do you have to say about this? In fact, maybe something came up today and you want to just take it to him and say, Jesus, what do you want me to do about this? Jesus, what one thing could I take out of my life to create more space? Or who is it, Jesus, that you want me to see in the crowds? Ask Jesus more questions. He will speak. Just like Jesus himself was moved by the Spirit, we are able to feel that in our bodies and hear that in our minds. And so you need to ask him and to listen to what God is saying and to ask more questions of the people around us. Not just how are you, but when someone answers to say, oh, tell me more about that. What did you mean by that? Oh, that seems to be difficult for you. Tell me more. Or notice, or I've seen you a, a million times at this gas station. I've never asked you your name. <laughs> to increase our question to statement ratio. Friends, this simple practice of listening actually makes us more attentive to God and God's spirit and God's voice and to see the people around us. You might think, oh, that's, that's a small thing, isn't it? But as I wrote, my mind went to a story that a friend of mine told me He's a pastor of young adults. He works with young adults and has for many years. And he said during the pandemic, he found out after the fact that one of his young adults had decided that he was going to take his life. And he did a bunch of research on where the best place was to take his life. And he discovered that the Golden Gate Bridge in California, San Francisco, was one of those places. And so he saved up money and he went to California and he was going to take his life. And as he was on the Golden Gate Bridge he started getting texts from other young adults in his group. Hey, how you doing? Haven't seen you in a while. What's going on? Texts from family members out of the blue, three or four or five, right as he was contemplating taking his life. And he said he felt the love of God rush over him. And he said, okay, <laughs> I'm not going to go through with this. He called a family member. They flew out and got him and brought him home. Now, let me ask you this. If that could be the difference in the impact between just scrolling through a feed and actually as you're scrolling and you see a face, think, I'm going to call that person. I'm going to text that person. I'm not saying throw away your phones. Let God use them to connect you 
truly with people instead of just scrolling on the stuff that makes us more jealous or more discontent or gives us information we don't need. Allow it for God's spirit to connect us. You have no idea who is waiting on the other end to actually hear from you. Who is in the masses of humanity who is waiting for you to see them? And God may be directing you to them. The more we create space, that we reduce the overcrowding, we thin out some of our schedules, we say no to some things, we stop or we question the things we're pursuing, the more we create space in our lives for God to speak to us and to speak through us and to work in us to actually uh, even save the life of someone who's right in front of us.